This morning I want to share with you from Acts 15, idols, blood, things strangled, and sexual vice. If that doesn't capture your interest, I don't know what will. <laughs> we've been traveling through the story of Acts, and we, uh, have, have, we've already made this first missionary journey. It started in Antioch in Syria. It was Barnabas, and it was Paul. Barnabas... Uh, took him first to his home, which is in Cyprus. And then Paul then took him up into his home territory in Asia Minor. And they've done this circuit, and they're now back in Antioch. They come back hoping to rest and tell stories of what God did and all the people that came to know Jesus as they shared the story. And it wasn't long that uh, some Jews that were very well-meaning, and they, were, they would have been Jews that were following Jesus, they showed up in Antioch, from Judea, so from the Jerusalem area, and they came and they made a demand. They they just said, this is the way it's got to be. If these Gentile believers that you're talking about are not circumcised in the fashion of Moses, another way of saying, they must become Jews before they can be saved. So... So really, this first missionary journey really opened up a big can of worms that no one anticipated. Maybe they should have. Maybe they should have realized that for hundreds, if not thousands of years, there'd been this increasingly bigger wall separating Jewish people from Gentile people. And what Jesus is doing is Jesus is removing that wall and he's, and he's causing Jews that have been separated from Gentiles to figure out, well, how in the world are we going to get together? And Gentiles, we've been outsiders. How are we, we going to mix it up with these insider people? So that's kind of where we are. Now, when that demand was made, they must be circumcised in the fashion of Moses according to the law in order to be saved. Paul and Barnabas, they jumped on their feet and said, that is not the way, no, that is not, no. So the, the, the leadership of the Antioch church was very wise. They said, well, the church has to decide this matter. So they sent Paul and Barnabas and a few others to Jerusalem, kind of mother church. And that, this is the first council, the first get-together that the church of Jesus Christ had to decide a matter that was really, really important. During that council meeting, there was not much progress being made. It's this argument, people yelling, people talking above each other, kind of like the nightly news when we, you know, watch that. And uh, no one was, there was no progress being made until Peter stood up and said, you know, let me tell you a part of my story. And these are two statements that I just want to keep sticking in our brain because I think they're really important. God treated the outsiders, that would be the Gentiles, exactly as he treated us, beginning at the very center of who they were and working from that center outward, cleaning up their lives as they trusted and believed him. He's really saying we, there's there's a lot of things we don't need to be worrying about if we're trusting God. The other statement, don't we believe? Don't we believe that we are saved not because of circumcision? Don't we believe that we're saved not because of the things that we do? We're saved because the Master Jesus amazingly 
and out of sheer generosity moved to save us just as he did those from beyond our nation. And that silenced the crowd. And so then you have this leadership of James. James broke the silence that just fell upon this council. Friends, listen. Simon has told us the story of how God, at the very outset, made sure that racial outsiders were included. This is in perfect agreement with the words of the prophets. After this, God says, I'm coming back. I'll rebuild David's ruined house. I'll put all the pieces together again. I'll make it look like new. So outsiders who seek will find. So they'll have a place to come to. All the pagan peoples included in what I'm doing. And James says, God said it. Now he's doing it. It's no afterthought. He's always known he would do this. So in the plan of God, in the revelation of God, in the story of God, in reading the Bible, the Bible's never been about one group of people. It's been about all of humanity. And when you read this prophecy from Amos, the house of David, that would be Israel. I'm going to come back and I'm going to rebuild that house. But I'm rebuilding that house not just for the racial sons of Abraham, for the Jew. I'm building that house for them and for the Gentiles. So the house of David that's being rebuilt, what God is doing, the Jew will never be complete without the Gentile. And the Gentile won't ever be complete without entering the house of David. That's what God's doing. So here's my decision, James says. We're not going to unnecessarily burden non-Jewish people who turn to the master. We'll write them a letter and tell them, be careful not to get involved in activities connected with idols. That's the operative statement. Don't get involved with activities connected with idols. Guard the morality of sex and marriage. Not, don't serve food offensive to Jewish Christians, blood, for instance. This is the basic wisdom from Moses preached and honored for centuries, now in city after city, as we have met and kept the Sabbath. Everyone agreed. Apostles, leaders, all the people, they picked Judas named Barsabbas and Silas, they both carried considerable weight in the church and they sent them with, to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas with a letter. Now let me try to bring home, because this is something of the past, and we, you know, I, I, I mean, nobody's walking into our life and saying, if you're not circumcised, you're not saved. I mean, I, that, no one's ever said that to me. Anybody ever said that to me? I mean, no. This divide, the dividing line between the Jew and the Gentile, I'm not sure any of us in this room really appreciate how huge that was. But there are other things that I think that this relates. I think there's principles here that kind of come home. And so this is the way, just to keep us with the story and not just write it off as history, it doesn't have, it's irrelevant. Here, these, this is what brings it home to me. One, what are we going to demand of a Jew... Who turns to Jesus?
What are we going to demand of a Muslim who turns to Jesus? What are we going to demand of a divorced couple who turn to Jesus? What are we going to demand of the drunk or the drugged or the sexually promiscuous or even the gay who turn to Jesus? See, the bottom line question here, not just, not just way back there in the past, for us today, how will we welcome the outsider who turns to Jesus and at the same time observe minimal requirements for interrelationship without brittle absolutism? Give you a moment. Read that question again. Because that's the bottom line. If you're going to stay with me, that's where you need to be right now. Are we going to lay demands on people that turn to Jesus that are different than us? There's a brilliance in what happened in the first century that should stick with us. There's no insistence on Jewish law only on the observance of minimal requirements for the interrelationships of Jewish and Gentile Christians. You see, those that came to Antioch, they were making a demand based upon the law. The law says this, it is absolute. If a person's going to be saved, they've got to be circumcised. That's it. No, no, that's it. That is the brittle absolutism. What the church decided was we're not we're not going to we're not going to resort to law. We're not going to try to to say, we're not going to take those ten laws and make them three laws. We're going to do something. We're going to find a way that really maintains relationship. And it's not just between Jewish and Gentile Christian. It also is between the Christian in these towns all across Asia Minor and Europe, everywhere the Jews have been dispersed. They needed to figure out a way. These people are saying that the law of Moses is fulfilled in Jesus, so therefore <laughs> there's got to be some sort, of, there's got to be some kind of, we don't want to mix the message here. We don't want to give unnecessary offense to the Jew who still needs to hear about Jesus. N.T. Wright, I like this statement. He says, what impresses me as he thinks about, he writes about this Jerusalem council, and what I long to see in the church of today and tomorrow is the realism with which the question is addressed. Rather than the brittle absolutism that so many might prefer. Now, let me be really quick. That is not saying there's no absolutes. There's a difference between absolutes and brittle absolutism. Do I need to explain that or do you get it? N.T. Wright is not denying the absolutes. I'm not denying the absolutes. But if we don't deal with the real questions... And we just come up with things that say, well, the Bible says this. 
it, it's, it doesn't work. And it didn't work in the first century. It won't work in our century. So they come to a solution. And their solution is that demands for rules do not work in justification or sanctification. I, I can't legislate you into relationship with Jesus. I can't legislate you into a holy life sanctified, set apart for, G, for Jesus. That goes right back to what Peter says. Why are we now trying to out-God God? Loading these new believers down with rules that crushed our ancestors and crushed us too. What are we doing? Rules don't work. I, I thought we discovered it's relationship. It's a God that moved into our life. And that's what he says the second. Beginning at the very center of who they were, the very center of who we are, who we were, God works from the center outward, cleaning up their lives as they trusted and believed him. See, do, do, do we really believe God is active? See, I know Jesus saved me. I didn't save myself. I just responded to him moving into my life. And once I responded to him moving into my life, he began at the center of who I was, and he began to change me from the inside out. It wasn't because I did one, two, three. I didn't, it's not because I followed rules. Now, is, are there principles? Are there absolute? Yes. But if I'm relying upon those rules, it doesn't work. So don't insist that people be circumcised. Then let's not make it difficult. Let's not make it difficult for those who are turning to Jesus or who have turned to Jesus. They, they, they were, that, that, that was part of their solution. We're not going to make this difficult for people. Again, I, that's brilliant. And basically what they said, we resolve to resist any kind of religious syncretism. That's the issue. We don't want people that are coming to Jesus out of their paganism to hold on to pieces of paganism and mix and mingle that with Jesus. They would say the same thing about the state of Judaism. There's, there's parts of Judaism that people have to let go to begin to follow. Circumcision would be one of them. So we don't want a syncretic faith. There's something new and better happening through Jesus for both Gentile and Jew. And then, they, then the last thing, they resolve to humbly seek the guidance of the Holy Spirit and to manage conflict towards resolution and relationship. So when James is saying, this is my decision, he's basically just saying, you know, I'm presiding over this conversation and best I know, I think this is what God is doing. And the other apostles and the leaders and those that said, you know, we agree. 
The Holy Spirit has led us to this point. So there's this humility of following the Holy Spirit, and it was really guided toward we want to maintain relationship. We don't want to, to pass edict to just destroy relationship. Now again, just to, just to fill that out, that's when you get to idols, blood, things strangled, and sexual, sexual vice. Basically, what they're saying is we have people coming to know Jesus from a Jewish background and from a pagan background. And what we want to say to those Jewish background believers, you, you need to avoid pollution, which would have been a ceremonial impurity. That, that, there's nothing wrong with that. And it comes from idols. Keep yourselves free from pagan customs that are part of sacrificial cultus. Idols are false and unreal gods. Just to give you a little flavor, I, I, I thought this quote was really helpful. Go to the next slide. Too great an emphasis is often laid on the idea of an object of false worship rather than on that of something without reality which fools have put in the place of the true God. You know, I remember the first time that I saw people bow down to an idol. In Malaysia, there was Buddha. There was people on the ground before an idol. And I fixated upon that big Buddha. And what this is saying is that's, don't, don't you know, you need to realize it's not, it's not necessarily that stone Buddha that those people are actually worshiping something that is not real. It's a false God. It's, it's beyond that physical thing. In its strictest sense, the idol is not merely an alt- alternative God. It's an unreal God. And therefore, false is distinct from the true and the real. I am the Lord your God. The Lord says, who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery, you must not have any other God but me. You must not make for yourselves an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God and will not tolerate your affection for any other gods especially when those gods are false and unreal. I am the true and the real God. That's the issue. It has to do with idolatry across Asia Minor. Let me go back to my place. We're having all kinds of fun things this morning. All right, keep yourselves free from pagan customs that are part of the sacrificial cultus. One would be idols. The other would be some pagan animal sacrifices. The animals were strangled, and therefore the blood was left in. That animal and that that food was digested as a sacrifice. According to the Old Testament ethic, 
there's a sanctity of blood. There's life is in the blood. That's why Jesus' blood could be given as a sacrifice for our sins. There's something in the blood. And so it's not just about the Old Testament dietary laws about don't eat blood. It has to do with, again, this, these sacrifices that are associated with pagan worship. Stay away from that. The last thing is cultic prostitution was widespread in Asia Minor in cults of mother deities. So the sexual vice, it's, it's not about maintaining marriage in the sense of having good marriage. It's really there is cult prostitution where these people live. They, got it. they cannot participate in that. So no, no more, you know, get, get as far as you can away from pagan practices, from idols, from sacrifices, from animals that have been strangled, from the blood of animals, and from prostitutes. The most obvious point, keep well away from pagan temples and from everything that went on in them. Then that leads us to us. Because I really think that this is not just about our history. This is very much about our today. And I'm wondering, as a community of people following Jesus, learning and living together, will we resolve to answer the questions of our generation with realism rather than with brittle absolutism? Whether you like it or I like it, we need to have an answer about homosexuality, about gay and lesbian. And there's a really brittle, absolute answer that isn't going to work. It didn't work back then. It's not going to work now. So we're going to be really challenged. How are we going to answer that question for our generation? It's not going to be easy. But can we resolve to go down the path that our forefathers went down? You could say the same thing about Muslims. Again, we can be just like brittily absolute about Islam and what we think about Islam. But it's not, that's not going to cut the answer. It's just not going to answer the questions about what's happening in our day. Y'all up for this? I mean, the, I mean if, you, if, you, if you said yes to Jesus, this is what you were invited to do. You were invited to make a difference in your generation. Did you just think we're going to kind of skate through our generation? You know, we just kind of show up on Sunday and do our little thing and we'd be blessed and think we didn't think we're going to have some challenges. It's going to make us think. It's going to expose what we don't know. This is what we signed up for. Do do we realize that? And are we up to really representing Jesus well to our generation. Because right now, in general, we're not. And it's because we're not giving real answers to real questions. You challenged? I hope we are. Because I don't want to see our generation like past without coming to know Jesus. And again, right now, we we don't have the best track record. Will we resolve to identify our false gods and encourage each other to keep away from 
everything that goes along with that unreality. Again, a false god is not always a visible idol parked on somebody's dashboard bobbing around. Our culture has its own false gods. There's an unreality and false gods in our culture. Do we recognize what they are? And do we recognize where they have us? And do we recognize that we have become a bit syncretistic in our following of Jesus and that the same resolution that this council made in the first century is something we need to resolve? We do not want to mix and mingle with false, unreal gods with the true and the living God. Up for that challenge? <laughs> I mean, up for us, well, what, are the, what are those false gods in our lives? Are we up for asking the Holy Spirit that and letting him show that to us? Then the last thing, will we resolve to not make it difficult for anyone turning to Jesus? my perspective we make it really difficult for most people to turn to Jesus we take the wonderful invitations that Jesus gave to his generation and we turn them around and we make it exclusive claims of truth When Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. That's an invitation that Jesus was able to give to his generation. And people said, aha, we have turned that around and made it an exclusive truth claim. There's no other way but Jesus. And it's no longer an invitation. It actually pushes people away from Jesus. It's a challenge. And they say, okay. I can dig in my heels too. Someone mentioned to me about, well, we got to train the next generation apologetics. There is no apologetics anymore. Have you noticed that? It's all a polemic. I'm right, you're wrong, and I'm going to convince you that you're wrong. And I can be as ugly as I want to in the name of Jesus. Listen to ourselves. Are we inviting people to know the one that we know? Or are we making it really difficult for people to turn to Jesus? And then when people turn to Jesus, are we making it really difficult for people to to feel like they're they're in because they still feel like they're out? What are we doing? It comes down to really believing our history. When Peter stood up, he knew that he knew that he knew that he knew God treats the outsider just like he treats the insider. What are we doing? That's the kind of moment we need to have. I really, really, really am concerned about our generation. I really, really, really want the generation that I've been a part of to be invited to follow Jesus without all the rules and the regulations and the difficulties. So would you like to stand with me?
can this be our resolution? I mean, I'm trying to do the very best that I can to learn from our past and bring it into our present. Can we learn? And can we resolve together that this is who we want to be? Because this is who we want to represent. Jesus, I pray that in these resolutions, that, that if, if we need wisdom, if we need insight, they help us. But Lord, in our generation, there's lots of questions being asked. And there's a disconnect between the answers that the church in general is giving to those questions. I ask, favor us as you did our forefathers. Favor us with a realism to answer the questions that people in our generation are asking. And help us to do that knowing and believing in your absolute truth. But not wanting to cram that down other people's throats. Jesus, it's, it's, it's kind of intimidating to me to say, please show us our false God. Show us where we have synchronized our faith with unreal and false gods. But I do, I invite you to expose those false gods in our life. That we would have nothing to do with that which is unreal, with that which is false, but only that which is with the true and the living God. And Lord, may we all resolve to remove everything that's difficult for the people around us to come to know Jesus, to turn to Jesus. Help us to remove the obstacles. Help us to remove the rules. Help us to remove <laughs> the sign that is there, but we, that says you're not really welcome here. Help us to remove that. Lord, we ask that your good news would be delivered to our generation through us. Empower us, Holy Spirit. Transform us. Go to work at the very center of who we were and change us for the better. In your name, Amen. I, I put a new a new thing up there. I, I know it, that uh, Megan is going to, and you know they they let you text during church. So I just want to invite you. If things that I said raise questions and you want to text me, you can do that right now. I've got my phone right here. Uh, Nate, you may not text me. Th- you know, throughout the service, but if you really have a question, you can. I'm, I'm on to you. I know how you do. But these are things that we need to talk about. And, and I know that a Sunday morning, sometimes we don't, we don't get to have as much of a conversation as I would like for us to. But just know, I, I think this is conversational. It's not just me telling you what to do. It's us coming 
to reason together. So text me. Uh, we can visit over in the corner. Uh, we can pray together. We can have coffee together. And let's, let's keep living our faith out together. In Jesus' name, amen.